We've all heard or read stories about lonely old ladies who live with dozens of cats, some named after ex-boyfriends who did them wrong. Well, a Brooklyn woman wants to counter stereotypes about people who love cats. A cat lady can be anybody. You can have a life, you can have a family, you can have children, you can have a job. More from Sunset Park's self-proclaimed unlikely cat lady coming up. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Also on this morning's show, tips for caring for your feline and canine companions. And if you don't have one, we'll take you to a place where there are plenty to choose from. We'll typically do anywhere on average between 10 to 20 adoptions per week. And later, tie that yellow ribbon round the old church fence. One New York City house of worship is doing just that to make a statement about the war. That's all coming up this morning on Cityscape. Glad you're with us. If your impression of a cat lover is an old spinster with frizzy hair and 30 felines prowling around her studio apartment, then you haven't met Brooklynite Nina Melkin. Nina has two cats of her own and takes care of a family of strays in her backyard, but she has a husband and a career. Nina's written a book about her experiences called An Unlikely Cat Lady, Feral Adventures in the Backyard Jungle. I met with her at her home to talk about it. Sunset Park, welcome to Sunset. As you can see by the array of weeds around us and our ghetto tomatoes, we are in the thick of the backyard jungle. Any hissing sound you might hear is not cats, but the spray of deep woods off. But there are cats amongst us this evening. Yeah, you've got some critters. You've got some fur bags. You call these cats fur bags. Some people would say, Nina, that's not very endearing. Yes, and some people have. But, you know, I mean, some people call their children um, unattractive things. Um, I say it with love. And um, they are lovely little fur bags. How many fur bags are in your backyard living right now? At the moment, our, our feral cat situation is a very stabilized colony of three. All three males, all neutered, um, all very unique and individual personalities, and um, we're crazy about them. What are their names? Grimly, the one who looks like a zeppelin, he's um, been here for about two years. He is a very tame, very sweet, not really a feral at all. He's a house cat that somebody turned out. And which is why he's so huge. You don't normally see a a feral cat quite that large. Then there's my obsession, Hobo Joe, who was named um, by my friend's son. Um, And he's been with us for about two and a half years. And he, you wouldn't believe that he's a fierce feral cat because if you come about, come at him early in the morning and you're not wearing shoes, um, you can, if you're me anyway, pick him up, put him on your lap, and he will purr and drool. But most of the time, he's very shy. And um, then we have Vivian, who I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show The Young Ones, but he's Vivian, a la Vivian from The Young Ones. And he showed up about a year ago, and he's a tuxedo, and he's a beauty. Um, he has a bit of a personality problem, but uh, we like him. How large was the feral cat population at its peak in this backyard? Uh, back here, we only had about nine. I, I, you know, as I say in the book, I talk a little bit about what real cat people do and real TNR people do, um, and they call what you have in your in your situation a colony. I never thought of it like that. I always thought of it more as a family. Um, I have friends who work with colonies of you know thirteen, fifteen, twenty, or more. Um, I have a friend who's uh, 
that's 78 years old. Um, she's a tough old broad from Liverpool, the only person who ever calls me love. And she, um, she's got the real deal colony in a vacant lot and in an abandoned street in Brooklyn. And she goes out there with her buckets of food and jugs of water. And, oh, here we go, love. We're going to go feed the kitties. And, um, you know, that's, that's the real deal. Um, I just have a couple of cats in my backyard. But I bet I'd have a whole lot more if we did not do trap, neuter, return on them. Yeah, you mentioned TNR, that is trap, neuter, return. Why don't you explain that? Well, it's what experts believe is the solution, the best solution to the homeless cat population um, worldwide. And there might be, I don't know, millions of cats. Wherever you go, especially large cities, Rome, for instance, I've heard, has a huge feral cat population. And here in New York, we've got a bounty of them. Um, You've probably walked down the street and seen somebody sort of slinking past you. Uh, Maybe there's a vacant lot in your neighborhood that you pass every day walking to work, and you see these guys out there. And, um, And sometimes there might be a nice person who feeds the cats, um, but doesn't do trap, neuter, return, which is when you trap the cat, get the cat neuter that's spayed or fixed, which is, they're never broken, but, you know, you have them fixed, and then you release them back into their, you know, natural environment, and then you proceed to take care of them for the rest of your or their natural lives. And what this does is it, it creates a vacuum in the area where the cat's They are very territorial, so they take care of their area. New cats don't necessarily come in. And, of course, since they've been neutered, new cats don't come out. I'm sure you're aware, though, Nina, of the critics who say that you're infringing on these cats' sexual freedom. I believe in the right to choose personally for, for, for human beings, and I believe that cats may want to have that right themselves. But I can't see a flea-bitten, starving unwell animal and think that it should be allowed to repopulate and repopulate when, you know, a female cat can have four and five litters uh, a year of as many as six or more kittens. It's just not fair. You didn't start off, though, with this TNR mentality. You write in the book how you wanted to find these cats' homes initially. Well, my husband made a a grievous error one day when he um, looked out our bedroom window and alerted me to a mama cat leading these four, I don't know, fist-sized tabbies through the backyard. And I thought, well, strike that, because thinking really didn't have very much to do with it, not at first. I kind of went running downstairs with my food and my water and thinking that, oh, kittens, how nice. Um, And everybody loves kittens, and I should be able to find homes for them, or if not, maybe they'll move in the house. But I soon found out that the kittens were feral, and I mean hissing, spitting, swiping, slicing, dicing. They really did not want to have anything to do with me except for the fact that I provided sustenance, um, at least not in the beginning. And... um, I didn't know what a feral cat was. I did not know what trap, neuter, return was three years ago, um, which is the experience that I find with a lot of people like myself. They don't start out to do this. They just discover a situation in their home area, and they can't look away. And so they educate themselves. 
And what's great about living here in New York is that there are so many resources and um, there's so much help for you. There's a group that you write about in your book called Neighborhood Cats. Neighborhood Cats is a great organization. It's based in, in New York City pretty much, but I think the organization has grown um, there's Alley Cat Allies, which is uh, a national organization. Also here in New York, you have um, a place like Muffins. the Muffins Pet Connection, Muffins.org, where you can get discounted spay-neuter certificates for the animals that you want to help out. Um, because this is sort of a one-man, bunch-of-cats situation. Uh, you see the situation, and you think, okay, I want to do something about it. And there's no, you know, government agency where you can go and get money. But the ASPCA, and people tend to think, ooh, ASPCA, bad. But actually, they operate a um, spay-neuter truck that can come to your house if you've got enough cats or you can bring your cats to them, and they will do it for you for free. So it's great in New York. How do you trap a feral cat, by the way? Well, George, I can bring the trap out for you if you'd like to see it. Um, the trap's about yay big. I don't know. Yay wide. This is radio. People can't yeah. see yay. <laughs> um, it's really not that difficult. Um, if you have a large colony, um, they recommend that you trap all at once. Um, we didn't do it that way. Um, what I, I do have to sort of preface by saying that, that an unlikely cat lady is not a how-to book on, the, on how to trap feral cats. Well, let's point out that you made a mistake once. You tried to catch a feral cat with your bare hands and you had quite a problem. Um, yeah, I still bear the scars. Um, I, I've written a how-not-to book in a lot of ways. Um, it's my personal experiences. Um, and you do kind of have to learn by doing. Um, but the general idea is that you have your cats, you get them on a feeding schedule so they know who you are and when the food's supposed to come. And this might sound a little cruel, but then you withhold food for about 24 hours so that they'll be nice and hungry. And then you set up your traps, which are very humane traps, um, and you set them up with some nice, tasty, smelly food. Um, I've always like the bumblebee solid white in oil um, and you set that up in the trap and then you go away and chances are somebody's going to walk in there and if you're lucky a whole bunch will and then when you know they get a little freaked out because you know they're cats they like things their way um, but then you sort of cover the trap with a, with a sheet or a towel and you take them to wherever you're going to take them to have them neutered you keep them in a safe, warm, dry place for 48 hours or so, um, depending whether it's male or female. And then you can cue the born free. You take them back out into the yard. You lift the trap, and out they go. And no hard feelings. They come back for oh, food. Oh, they come right back for food again. I The first time we, we sort of, you know, TNR'd a cat, we thought we saw his furry haunches disappearing into the brush back there and thought we would never see them again. Um, but yeah, back he came like clockwork. This all started with one cat, a cat that you named Flocka, am I right? Yeah, um, Sunset Park is, I think I read someplace that um, it has the most diverse zip, it's the most diverse zip code in, in the city. Um, all kinds of people live here, but our block is um, like a little mini United Nations, but it's very Spanish around here. 
and um, one of our neighbors was giving mostly my husband, a little bit me, sort of a ESL, SSL exchange program, and that's how we learned that flaco is kind of slang for skinny. Um, and we found this little cat one day in the front of our house, not in the yard, and she was sweet and friendly as could be. You pick her up, she'd just sort of lay there like she was on quaaludes, and um, we started calling her Flocka because she was a skinny little thing. She hung around for a couple of weeks, um, and she'd come every day to the door and get fed, and then disappeared, you know, beamed up to the mothership. I, I, I don't know how many other people have done this. Maybe their cats have stuck around for years and years like the guys we have now have been here for about three years um, but Flocka disappeared as mysteriously as she arrived and you just got to wonder you know what happened to her was it you know death by SV, SUV or death by slavering wolverine I don't know but they, they go so you're really putting your heart out there when you do this well, you get attached. I mean, you know, we have two very beautiful, spoiled alley cats, but house, you know, house cats that we love. But there's something about these guys, their scrappiness and their tenacity and their needy nonchalance that is very attractive. And, um, you know, that kind of connects, I don't know about everybody, but kind of connects to the wildness in, in me and the stick-to-itiveness, maybe, um, and the, the desire to live that I think people who do this connect with. Your indoor cats are named Iggy and Echo. Are they aware that Mommy two times with feral cats on the outside? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, when the cats first started to appear outside the kitchen window, um, Iggy and Echo would fling themselves against the window trying to smack the cats away. My cats are not cat people. You know, as I said, cats are very territorial. They do not want me going out there playing with anybody else. Up until recently, we had... Uh, it's very quiet in the house these days because for the last two months, I was fostering some kittens for another sort of rescue-type person. And um, they came in, they were about a month old, and once they got to be about three months old and got to be around two to three pounds, it was safe to have them um, neutered which we just did, and boy, the cats are doing the happy dance inside because those little kittens are gone. The book, of course, is called An Unlikely Cat Lady, and that's because cat ladies, there's a certain stereotype when it comes to cat ladies, a stigma attached to the term cat lady. These are older women. These are spinsters. They're not married. They live alone. They have no lives. You are not that. Uh, No, not yet anyway. Um, Having other people in your life does sort of help keep the cat population down, Um, but that's true, and that is kind of what I would like to dispel in the books because a cat lady can be anybody. A cat lady can be a cat man. Anybody with a heart can be a cat lady in the non-stereotypical way. You can have a life, you can have a family, you can have children, you can have a job. Um, you can leave the house for anything other than buying more kibble. It seems to me, Nina, that you get a great deal of enjoyment out of being a cat lady. But I want you to read the beginning of Chapter 3 for me and then explain to me what was going through your mind when you wrote that. Okay? Oh, okay. When I lie decrepit 
ancient on my deathbed and loved ones gather round to beseech some final words of wisdom, I know what those words will be. Don't, I will croak, sagacious and presumably serene, ever feed stray cats, followed by more morphine. Why would you tell them don't ever feed stray cats? Because I was trying to be funny. Um, because it is a commitment. When I saw the kittens outside my window and run rushing down with the food and water, I was not thinking. You're better off turning away than feeding to breed, which is when you feed and you don't do trap noon return. You're better off not taking this on unless you want to because it is a commitment, but it is a rewarding commitment. And not just in your own backyard or your own garage or your own vacant lot, but in the way of when you see children and families with their own pets and you see that they're happy and that everybody belongs together and that everybody's loved and there are less orphans around. You know, the, the cats you TNR today are hundreds of thousands of unwanted animals that are not around tomorrow. So it is rewarding, and, you know, kibble is relatively cheap, and they're fun. I like them. Nina Malkin, an unlikely cat lady. Thank you so much. Thank you, George. Thanks for your interest in the book and in feral cats. An Unlikely Cat Lady, Feral Adventures in the Backyard Jungle is published by the Lions Press. Lost or stray animals often end up in one of New York City's shelters. Bidawi, which means stay a while in Scottish, has been matching pets with people for more than a hundred years. We recently paid a visit to Bidawi's Manhattan location. My name is Michael Rube, trainer and enrichment coordinator for Bidawi. Among many things, um, the primary responsibility of a trainer and enrichment coordinator at Bidawi is to take animals in. Um, from various places, sometimes from owners or people who cannot take care of their animals anymore, sometimes from local municipal shelters, and we try to help them out, other times from other rescue organizations uh, throughout the country. We'll typically do anywhere on average between probably 10 to 20 uh, adoptions per week or 10 to 20 dog adoptions per week, and depending on the time of year, sometimes you know as, as much as 15 to 20 cats especially during kitten season where there are plenty of them. Right now we are in the main cattery. We usually can fit probably somewhere along 30 to 40 cats in here. We have some cages and some open area where the cats can play and actually have communal living with each other and play and jump up and do things that typically uh, a, a cat would have in a home. So we really like the communal living and sometimes we wish we had more space to do that. Right now we're in the main kennel adoption area for dogs. Um, you can surely hear them right now. Um, this is where we usually will keep them, hopefully not for too long, until they become adopted. We'll try to give them things to do while they're here, uh, have appropriate bedding and toys and enrichment for them, and obviously walks every day to keep them occupied uh, behaviorally. And also we'll take care of them medically while they're here as well. Uh, make sure they have all their shots up-to-date on everything, spayed and neutered before adoption, and microchipped. So we do a little bit of everything while they're in this area. From the moment a person walks into our facility, um, 
they're asked questions about their lifestyle, um, about you know if they have children at home, um, how long are they going to be able to be home, thus if they want a puppy or an adult dog, we'll be able to help guide them in the most appropriate decision for them. Um, we'll have everybody in the family uh, or people who live in the home come and interact with the pet as well because sometimes there are certain animals who deal with different people differently. Bayou de Vista has recognized the first no-kill shelter in, I think, in the country. That's basically what um, Mrs. Kibbe had founded this place on uh, over 104 years ago now, in 1903. You know, she saw a, a, an issue with a lot of the animals that weren't getting an opportunity that maybe they had deserved, and she had formed that idea of keeping the animals as long as you can and, and actively seeking out adoption. Um, so we don't have to euthanize them. For more information about Bidawi, go to Bidawi.org. Having a dog or a cat is a big responsibility, and there's a lot to consider when it comes to their care. Joining me now on the phone is Tom Soames. Tom's known as the pet safety guy. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, George. How are you doing today? Good. We're here to talk about your guide, Knowing Your Pet's Health, a guide for optimal wellness from snout to tail. And Tom, you mean that literally from snout to tail. You urge pet owners to do snout to tail assessments on a regular basis. We believe in a hands-on approach to optimal wellness for our pets. And that snout to tail assessment, I cannot go on long enough about that. We've had people who found diabetes and cancer and strange uh, really unique nerve tumors that would never have been found if they hadn't done that snout-to-tail assessment. What's involved with that assessment? You go from snout-to-tail. You want to check the snout, and it's an old wives' tale that the snout should be cold and wet, but it shouldn't be so much either way. It shouldn't be so dry that it's hard and cracked, and it shouldn't be so wet that there's any kind of discharge. Then you go into the muzzle and the mouth and the eyes, and a lot of groomers take our program, and one thing that they find is the coat, the hair coat, is one of the first things to go with chronic illness because our pets are getting uh, cancer more. They are getting diabetes more. And, and we address that in the book because our pets live in the most toxic part of our homes. And the, the coat's one of the first things to go. And uh, the groomers pick up on that because it happens so slowly, it's almost imperceptible to the owner. So the, we really believe pet care professionals have a big role to play in the ongoing health of our pets. You write in your book, Tom, that there is no part of your pet that you should not be able to touch. This is true. And sometimes we get some smirks or laughs inside of our class, but that's something that starts very young. And with, with puppies and kittens, you want to start this now to tell assessment on them because there is no part of the pet that you shouldn't be able to touch. Uh, you know, a lot of people go, well, my, my pet doesn't like me messing with their ears or brushing their teeth or clipping their, their, their nails or checking their temperature all the way to the back end there. And who's training whom is what we, our response to that is. Because if you start early enough, it just becomes a normal part of it. Can you teach an old dog new tricks, though, Tom? <laughs> if you were to get a dog from a shelter that's a little bit older, maybe they're not used to this kind of assessment. You know, they don't like to be touched in certain places. I've got a little catchphrase for that, too. We call it the speed of going slow. You know, we live in such a fast-paced, caffeinated society that, you know, people try to, like, brush all their pets' teeth, like, in one stop, and they go, oh, it won't work. Well, it's through love and compassion, and, and if they know that this is done in a good way with them, they're, they're much more open to it. So, yeah, you, you can teach an old dog new tricks. You definitely can touch them from snout to tail. It might take longer. 
But what's the outcome? I mean, you could find something that could uh, improve the quality of the pet's life and improve the quantity of that pet's life. You also recommend that pet owners should check their dog or cat's pulse. How do you do that? We consider that to be part of the vitals, and the vitals overall are, are pulse, respirations, of course, their temperature, but another key component of that is the mucous membrane color. And where we would check that is on the gums of dogs and cats. They should be normally like pink gums, unless it's a child that has black gums. But checking the pulse is pretty easy. It's almost like a handshake, and you come in underneath the back of the leg. And in all these things we're talking about, the snout-to-tail assessment and the... Uh, all the vitals, all the numbers that are behind there, those are all in the book in a step-by-step way that you can do this. What's a normal pulse for a dog or a cat? Well, what we recommend is you need to find out what's normal for your pet because there's such a wide range of normal for your pets. Pets' pulses can range anywhere from 60 to 140, depending on the size of the animal. And in a way, it's, it's counterintuitive because if you have a really big dog, the pulse tends to be very low. Whereas if you have a little dog, like a chihuahua, the pulse can be very high. So it's kind of counterintuitive in that way. So you want to know what's normal for your pet. That's what we recommend. Let's talk about nutrition, Tom. What should you look out for on labels when buying pet food? Because there are certain things you want to avoid. One of our top ingredients that we say that you don't want to see on your label is beet pulp. The reason they put it in the dog food, they say, is because it adds fiber in that stuff. And it really has no nutritional value. It really can mask uh, the symptoms of some diseases and things like that. Tom Soames, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the air. You can learn more about Tom's book, Knowing Your Pet's Health, by visiting doggydoggyareyouok.com. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boracchi. Yellow ribbons have long been a national symbol for supporting the troops. They're normally seen tied around trees outside of people's homes. But as Maggie Martin reports, a New York City church is using them to make a big statement about the war. Just below the Empire State Building on 5th Avenue and 29th Street, you'll notice a church surrounded by an iron fence covered in a sea of yellow ribbons, a few of them blue and green. If you walk a little closer, you'll see plastic-covered tags attached to the yellow ribbons with names and ages. They're all of the U.S. servicemen and women who've died in Iraq and Afghanistan since the war on terror began. So this is a huge representation of the church's prayers acknowledging the loss of life, both of Americans and foreign civilians. That's Kim Sebastian Ryan. She's the archivist and historian of Marble Collegiate Church. She's been heading up the Prayers for Peace ribbon project since it began in March 2006. While the yellow ribbons are for the troops, the green ribbons represent the church's prayers for peace, and the blue ones represent the Iraqi and Afghan civilians who've died in the conflicts. It's important to me that the church has decided to do this, to make this great acknowledgement of this sacrifice. Ryan keeps up the ribbon display by adding new names whenever there's been a casualty overseas. But it was Marble Church's senior minister, Dr. Arthur Caliandro, who came up with the initial idea. Speaking from his summer home in Maine, he says the ribbons are not meant to be political. It's a very complex situation here. There are young people who are giving their lives, and very sincerely, and I think with tremendous courage. So what it is, it's a statement about war, that war is not good. 
that people die in war, that there is suffering, that there is pain, and it's a non-ending pain. So these, these ribbons are for that purpose. Thousands of people have come to see the ribbons, and Dr. Caliandro remembers one visit in particular. One of our members on a Saturday afternoon was walking by the church, and there was a man there who held a ribbon with a name on it. He said, my son, my son, my son. And that was, a, that was the drama. I get goose pimples when I think of it now. And Kim Ryan also recalls another moving visit when the mother of the first Navy SEAL killed in the conflict came to find a ribbon with her son's name. I think it was like 18 degrees. It was last December, and we looked for his name for hours and finally found it because at the time she came, we had about 3,000 ribbons. That was when the ribbons weren't organized in any particular way. Now they're lined up along the church fence in alphabetical order. But the display still draws people in and makes them wonder what it says about the war. People like Hoboken resident Anel Swart, who's just passing by. I think it's beautiful for the people to keep it in memory, but it's also it shows the world that there needs to be a stop. Because this is awful to stand here and see that there's loved ones left behind and they need to witness this. And fathers, mothers are crying because of their children that's lost in something tragically like this. About 2,400 ribbons lined the fence when Kim Ryan started the project. Today, there's more than 4,000. Lance Corporal Joshua M. Hines, age 26. Staff Sergeant Jason R. Hendricks, age 28. At first, the display was supposed to be up for just a few weeks. But now, as Americans continue to die overseas, no one's sure when they'll come down. Private First Class Thomas J. Hewitt, age 22. For Cityscape, I'm Maggie Martin. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.